This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, April 6, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. When Barack Obama gave his keynote address and made his name, really, at the 2004 Democratic National Convention, imagine when he was talking about red states and blue states, red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats. We all knew what he meant, how everything had become politicized. And the examples he reached for, gay friends, little league, federal agents poking around in libraries, we knew which side of the political divide he was assigning those activities or those concerns to. But let's go back. Go back to 2004 in your mind, if you can, and casting your mind forward to today. And try to fathom what you would think then of how much more political everything has become. It's insane. Red hats are politicized. The OK sign has become politicized. Certain brands of pillows politicized. Chachi and Nike. The actress Meryl Streep. The boxer Jack Johnson. Fast food cheeseburgers. The NFL. You know what? Maybe we saw that one coming, but not the way it went down. The NFL became a Democrat thing for a season there. But now the craziest, absolutely most bananas substance to ever have become politicized has become politicized. We're talking 18 molecules of carbon, 26 of hydrogen, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Hydrochloroquine. We're debating, intensely debating, about a chemical compound. Your opinion of the chemical compound tells me all I need to know about who you're voting for or voted for. At issue is this. Is the president too optimistic about the efficacy of this chemical compound. Peter Navarro loves this chemical compound. The actual scientist, Anthony Fauci, has a more, let's say, um, a more accurate view of it, which isn't that it's a bad chemical compound when it comes to treating coronavirus, but that we don't know if it's the right chemical compound to treat coronavirus effectively. And they argued about this, according to Axios. What a debate this must have been. The scientist with a background and training in organic chemistry and the protectionist economist who has written on the economics of trash collection, which is an interesting topic, sure. It's just not organic chemistry. Navarro was on CNN talking, kind of debating with their host, John Berman. And Berman said this. We all want the same thing which is people to get I'm better from sure this. I'm sure we do sometimes. Oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> Hang on, hang on. Well, you're, you're really, you're setting, setting this up kind of as a false dichotomy between, a, you know, don't, a, don't this you, doctor you know, Peter, over Peter, here. I respect and, you and I respect you. Yeah. Don't you dare for a second suggest that I don't want people to get better from this. No, I, I got two friends. I, I got two friends no, 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 in no, bed no, right no, now. No, that's not what I this. said, John. Don't put those words in my mouth. But when you say that, we, you know, when we come on here and we say we, we all want the same thing, there's this political overtone, this battle between, 
you know, you're trying to get this false dichotomy. There's no false the dichotomy. And, we want and, and, people and to get better. We want people we to get better. Then, we absolutely want people to get better. And I appreciate your efforts John. to do so. I appreciate yeah. it. But don't suggest no, that no, my no, questions are anything that. other than trying to figure out what yeah. the science didn't, is behind this and the efficacy. Fair enough, John. I, oh, Berman did not like that. Okay. Okay, Navarro, you want to get on that high horse? I happen to have stacked two Clydesdales on top of a Shetland pony, buddy. Over on Fox, the interview with Peter Navarro was somehow less contentious. The trade representative making this argument. That we are in war. President Trump is a wartime president in the fog of war. I have never heard the fog of war offered as a pre-hoc justification. Well, you know, people make mistakes. Let's have this be one of them. Don't you understand, Dr. Fauci has his position based on medicine, and I have mine based on a fog. Wasn't the original cause of the plague thought to be a miasma? And now miasma is being cited to tout the current end of the plague. The reason why this is the stupidest argument we've ever had is that there actually are not two sides to the argument. I'm not saying one side is right and the other is wrong. No, I'm saying there aren't two sides. No one's arguing two different things, right? One side is saying, hey, this could be a game changer. This could very well save lives. But the other side is not saying, no, it won't. The other side is just saying, let's see. And the champions of chloroquine are angrily arguing back, let's see. What do you mean, let's see? Let's see. If it works, your attitude should be, hey, let's see if it works. Yeah, I know. Let's see if it works. Because it could work. Yeah, because it could work. No, no, you traitorous pessimist. It could work. This is what we're arguing about. On Twitter, all these people with American flags in their names are saying the media are hoping chloroquine doesn't work. Tucker Carlson, a man with an American flag implied in his name, said this about the media. Because the president was hopeful, the press was the opposite of that. Basically, they opposed finding a cure for the coronavirus because they feared it might give the president some political advantage. Yes, yes, so true. As a member of the media, can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with my fellows saying, hey, do you want there to be a corona cure or not? I mean, a lot of people will be saved, but it could help Trump. Yeah, I think we got to let all those people die. But wait a minute, say all us members of the press to each other. But what if some of the people who die would one day have gone on to get an abortion? Wouldn't that be sad to lose the future abortion getters? Because, you know, they're the real heroes, to which everyone else in the media says, I don't know. It's so hard to tell without clear instructions from George Soros. Look, obviously Tucker gets it, stipulated. But at the risk of saying something that deep in his heart of hearts, he knows no one is hoping chloroquine doesn't work. Anthony Fauci hopes it works. John Berman hopes it works. John Berman's vertically arrayed horse configuration, they all hope it works. The tiger in the Bronx Zoo hopes it works. The most erudite minds in science hope it works. The least educated, unsophisticated people on Twitter hope it works. I call those people the Hope Hicks. Oh, Hope Hicks hopes it works. Pink, Chris Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, the descendants of Perry Cuomo, they all hope it works. But if it doesn't, I also hope that we have a backup plan. I can hope both those things at once. On the show today, I spiel about tigers. Save the tiger, the later the tiger. Why not both? But first, 
Let's check in on a topic that we, I, have left unexplored for some time now. When we last left the Democratic primary, Joe Biden had all but sewn it up. He's maybe inched even a little closer to the phrase presumed nominee. The promise of the youth quake that Bernie Sanders needed did not materialize. Now, back then, this was a couple weeks ago, I talked to Charlotte Alter of Time Magazine, who had been reporting on younger voters to figure out what happened. Her book, The Ones We've Been Waiting For, is about the youth, the youths, and our conversation, which, as I said, was held a couple of weeks ago, but was preserved in amber, is still quite relevant and well-observed. And here it is for you now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All my life, I've been promised two things. One, soccer is going to be the sport of the future. And two, the kids are going to overtake politics. And they didn't, neither one has totally happened, but they both happened a little bit. You know about soccer. I don't have to tell you about that. Here's where we are with younger voters. They're consistently liberal. They're more active than they ever have been before. But I do find that the predictions of their transformative power have often crashed upon the Rocky Shoals reality. Right before me, I have a list of all the vote of the 18 to 29-year-olds in midterms. In 2006, 60% went Democrat. In 2010, 55% went Democrat. In 2014, 54% went Democrat. Now you know, in 2018, there was a huge youth movement. But all this time, they've been telling me all the kids are going Democrat and are going liberal. Added to this analysis of this generation is, I think, the best book that I've read because it is deeply reported. It has all the statistics that you'd want, and it has profiles, again, reported. You can't beat reported. It has profiles of some of the biggest, uh, most important political figures of the younger generation. The name of the book is The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. The author is Charlotte Alter. Charlotte's here with me now. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. So this book, this book is great, and again, reported. It's deeply reported. It's not just assertions and manifestos and angry hands in the air. And you will also say where there's been a lot of predictions, sometimes it doesn't always match up, right? Where there is always this idea that the youth movement's coming and then often it doesn't. And you analyze that and acknowledge it. Right, right. I mean, in some ways, I think that, you know, there's like a couple ways to look at this. One way to look at it is that kids will vote this way. Young people will do this. Young people will do that. Uh, There's no way to say what will happen in the future. Mm -hmm. What we can say is that today's young people are tomorrow's middle-aged people. Unless the virus really does. Unless the virus, you know, (laughs) like actually coronavirus might be threatening that. But like that is, I think, a pretty safe assumption that the people who are in their 70s and 80s who are in charge of things now won't be in charge forever. Right. And that the people who are in their 20s and 30s who are just now beginning to to grasp at political power are going to have more influence on the future than the people who are in their 
70s and 80s right now. Yes. And so that's the premise of this book, is that by looking at these people who are the young up-and-comers, it's not necessarily about the youth vote more broadly, because as you've rightly said, it's unpredictable. I mean, yeah. look at what just happened with Bernie Sanders in, on Super Tuesday. But, well, um, that's the biggest thing. That's the yeah. most fascinating thing. He was right and he was wrong. He did yes. great with the youth vote. He predicted he'd set records with the youth vote. And absolutely, he crushed Biden with the youth vote and everyone else. However, the youth vote, as always, the smallest portion of the electorate. Right. And that never changes. Yeah. I mean, there have been some moments where it's changed. I mean, Obama... Mm -hmm. drove out young people to a tremendous degree. In the 2018 midterms, there was record youth turnout. Yes. In the general election, important to know that in the general election, which is different from a primary, I think a primary can be really especially hard for young voters because it's, like, confusing. Remember, like, these are... Oftentimes, young voters are first-time voters, right? Yes, yes. Which means that they have to figure out all this stuff about where they live. You know, like, when people are confused about why young people don't vote, I like to explain all the ways that it's like actually logistically pretty hard for a young person to vote. Probably by design. Probably by design. I mean, design. it is homeowners and taxpayers exactly. that the government serves and you send a notice to someone who's been living in their home for years yes. and they know where their polling place is for years. Yeah, because they've been and voting for And that's who gets contacted. Years. Right. Exactly. Right. Whereas young people, like, look at the living patterns, right? A lot of people are renting apartments or they're subletting and they live in three different apartments in two years and maybe they're getting their mail to you know, their last apartment and not their new apartment. Right, right. Maybe. And all different states have different rules about when you can qualify as uh, an in-state voter or vote absentee. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's and, not as easy. Right. And and all this stuff, I mean, think about how much of our voting system is based on mail. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Like, you know, you get, you, you have to register with your mailing address. You have to present pieces of mail to, you know, prove where you live. All this stuff is like, this is a generation <laughs> that does not understand the post office. They literally have never licked a stamp. Literally <laughs> have maybe li licked like two stamps yeah. in their life. So, you know, that is something that is like, it's it's just like confusing for a lot of young. I'm not saying it's an excuse. Right. Like, definitely they should get over it. But it's... <laughs> But it's like one reason why they're so unreliable. So the other thing is, I'm not a huge believer in the idea of generations as distinct cohorts. I think that it's a little more accurate than horoscopes, but it's a little, <laughs> it's a little less accurate than science. Because I think that once you norm for like a couple really big things like uh, familiarity with technology mm -hmm. and the actual economic circumstances that you entered the workplace, that pretty much explains everything about a generation. I would think it explains 90% about a generation. Then again, maybe I'm saying I do believe in generations. I just define it as familiarity with technology yeah. and your economic circumstances. But here's the question. So two, probably the two high profile, highest profile people in the book are Pete Buttigieg and AOC. Very different politics, very different styles. But also I think... Importantly, Buttigieg born 82, AOC born 89, aren't they as dissimilar as similar just based on that seven-year gap as much as anything else? So, I mean, yeah, in that, like, you could say that Pete Buttigieg born 1982 might, you know, be as distant as somebody born in, you know, 1974, yes. you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, definitely this is an, as you said before, it's an inexact science is even not the right word. What the theory of generations tells us is not really that it's about being, you know, young or old or who your parents are or who your grandparents are. It's about how old were you at a particular 
point in time. It's the study of people moving through time. Mm -hmm. And what some, you know, pretty reputable political and social scientists have found is that events experienced in early adulthood have roughly like three times the impact of events experienced in later adulthood. So, for example, let's take the climate strikes that just happened last year, right? If you are 19 years old, those climate strikes might seem like a huge moment for you, like a huge political galvanizing moment for you. If you're in your 50s and 60s, you've seen a bunch of strikes. You've seen a bunch of protests. It might not be. It's like, oh, great. More people in the streets. No big deal. Right. You know, you know, those climate protests are going to have a bigger impact on that 19 year old kid who's going to remember that for decades and and maybe vote based on the politics that were informed by experiencing that event more than somebody who kind of walked by it on their way to work one day and said, I've seen a million of these. Who cares? Right. So you interviewed AOC after she had been elected and was already a phenomenon. You got to Buttigieg pretty early. Yeah. I don't want to just focus on that, but there is something interesting to me there in that their communication styles are a little bit different. And AOC is primarily, she's great at social media, although, you know, good at TV and public speaking, whereas Buttigieg is okay and great at social media, but really great at public speaking. So Mm -hmm. Buttigieg is better at the older style and AOC is better at the newer style. And it probably, that probably says something about who they are appealing to. Yeah. Or does it say something about who they want to appeal to and who they put their emphasis on appeal? I mean, I think it says something about both of those things, but I also just think it says something about their fundamental approaches to the system. Mm -hmm. I mean, AOC is an activist who happens to be elected to Congress. Right. She approaches politics through the realm of changing the frame of the debate and then the laws and the votes will follow. You know, changing hearts and minds, you know, whipping people up into hope and anger so that, you know, they demand more of their leaders. Right. Like that's her theory of change. He is a much more kind of traditional Obama-style pragmatist or sort of pragmatic idealist in some ways. Like, he thinks... And and remember, he's a mayor, so he's used to small, concrete, tangible wins. Yes, yes. He's not really... He's not an ideologue. And that's something that I think people misunderstand about Pete. A lot of people who see politics only through the lens of ideology Mm -hmm. hate... Pete Buttigieg because they're like, what do you believe? We don't know what your beliefs are, la, la, la. He is not ideological. Mm-hmm. He fundamentally doesn't see things in a, you know, I am to the left, therefore what is what is the farthest right, right. solution to the left? He's like a total pragmatist, which a lot of people see as like a sellout thing, but that's just kind of how he sees problems because he's forged his political career in South Bend when he had to be like, okay, uh, we need a new community center on the west side of the city. Like, how do we take it from not existing to existing as quickly and as efficiently as possible? Now, personally, and maybe it's a function of my age, my generation, or just how I've been paying attention, it seems to me that the AOC way or theory of change If I were an activist, I'd have to subscribe to that theory of change because the only way to get change. But I don't really think that's how change occurs. I think change occurs more like, as Barack Obama explained, steering the aircraft carrier two degrees at a time. And then you eventually get there. And he was using that analogy in terms of gay marriage. But it could have been a lot of other things. So if you look at how society has changed, it has been by, you know, getting down, rolling up your sleeves, saying the cliches and doing the work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But is it generational? Does the younger generation, does the millennial generation? 
organization believe actually in gradual change? Or do they subscribe to the AOC theory of change, big swings, let's all get active and then we'll get the actual government policies to change based on our passions? And to add to that, it does seem like that theory of change is born of social media and the idea that, well, 12 people in a room, what can they do? But thousands of people clicking likes, oh, that's the thing with meaning. I think to answer your question, it's basically a little bit of both. Uh And in some ways, what this book is about is the dance between those two theories of change, right? Because that's, I think, what's going to define this generation is is that the people working outside the system, the people, the AOCs of the world, yeah. are going to have to run for Congress and get to work a little bit inside the system in order to get what they want done done. You know, that's the difference between, frankly, an Occupy protester and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They both have a really similar analysis of what's wrong with American government and what's wrong with money in politics. The difference is that somebody at Occupy was, you know, protesting in the streets and AOC ran for Congress and now is, you know... a a voting yes. member, right? Well, also Occupy was, they denigrated the idea of demands. They laughed exactly. like it was the biggest joke. And right. any real activist will tell you, you have to tell them your demands or you'll never get yeah, it. Yeah, right. Now, f- I don't even know if it was from conceiving of this book till now, but there's another big change. I don't even know if you noticed it, but there are so many references to Facebook working really well about five years ago. Mm-hmm. So that mayor of Ithaca turns his parking spot that he didn't need because he's a millennial and millennials don't have cars yeah. into like this public park the size of a parking spot. And you come and chat mm-hmm. with the mayor. But it was all the message got out on Facebook. Right. I mean, there were like four or five references to when Facebook wasn't a for yeah. a destructive force. Yeah. And so I wonder if, you know, the the version of this book or the when the paperback comes out, if there's and then social media turned against the millennials just like every other institution did also. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that's certainly a part of it. But I would say that the failure of social media and the reason it's been such a destructive force has a lot to do with the failure of older politicians to regulate it well because they just don't fundamentally understand it. So there's a whole chapter in this book called Senator We Run Ads because that's what because that's what Mark Zuckerberg (laughs) said to the like you know, septuagenarians who he was testifying in front of in the Senate yeah. who literally had no idea how Facebook worked and what the business model was. And how does Facebook make money? Son? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Or, or when they had, um, who was it from? Was it from uh, Google and Steve King was yeah. pressing them on the iPhone? Exactly. How come this pops up? It's yeah, like, like oh, fix my make, phone. Yeah. Like what? What this app? What? You know, like my daughter's playing a game. IPhone. Exactly. <laughs> so like I, I would argue that in some ways, you know, the fact that Facebook has been able to get out of control in the way that it has is because tech regulations are run by people who were you know, already eligible for Social Security when when Facebook was invented. And, you know, you're right that probably I will update this in a in a paperback version <laughs> of this book. But one, I think, big moment was the difference between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez cross-examining Mark Zuckerberg versus, you know, a Chuck Grassley or a Steve King or yeah. a Lindsey Graham asking cre- questions to Mark Zuckerberg is a huge difference. So I think that when you have more millennials who are sitting on the other side of that table asking the tough questions, knowing the capabilities of this, these huge social networks, you're going to see a lot tougher regulation. Well, Chuck Grassley has a bedtime of, I think, 730. Yeah. So, well, yeah. he's older than the chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as I said, as I said on the way in, on the way out, I'll say it again. And maybe from this chat, 
our listeners got the idea this is mostly about ideas. It's actually mostly about people and very expertly like a documentary like Spellbound or even Cheer. It's organized around an event. It culminates. It's the election of 2016 and all these disparate characters crest and they all have to react to that election. It's really well done, really well researched. Thanks for coming on. Charlotte Alter, author of The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. That was great. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel, tigers, tigers in the news. There's a Tiger King documentary that I've refused to see, even though my producer tells me not seeing Tiger King is not a personality, Mike. Okay, what if I aggressively call it the Tiger King? Have you seen the Tiger King? How about the Tiger King? Is that a little bit more of a personality? Also, Tiger Great, Detroit Tiger Great, that is, Al Kaline has died. Are you like me when someone dies these days, someone famous? Do you immediately start scanning the article? Was it Corona? Was it Corona? Was it Corona? That is really all I care about. I need to know which section of the newspaper to put it in, the Corona or just the regular obit section. Normally, I'd care if Al Kaline died. He was a great baseball player. I'd read a little bit about him. But if he died of Corona, it means something else. If it's not Corona, and I read the obituary of, say, 72-year-old former Oklahoma Senator Tom Coburn, and it's not Corona, I'm not saying I'm disappointed. I'm just saying it's a little less relevant and less deserving to be in the news section. But if Bill Withers dies of Corona, and he did die of Corona, I think, see? What is that see of a see? See what? Like an 81-year-old couldn't have died of something other than Corona? Or see? It really does kill 81-year-olds, which we knew. I don't know why I think see, but I do think see. Don't really need examples. So sorry for Bill Withers that he was one. But I guess it more fits in with my narrative. Now, here's something that didn't necessarily fit in with my narrative. That's why it's news. That's why it's interesting. Nadia a four-year-old female Malayan tiger at the Bronx Zoo has tested positive for coronavirus. So it turns out that Nadia had been on spring break with Pink and Kevin Durant. Uh Uh-huh, this is what happens. 
This is why we told DeSantis to close the beaches. The head veterinarian at the Bronx Zoo said the tiger should recover. I hope so. Uh, She'll have to make amends for her actions because the day before the diagnosis, she took questions from the media, then licked all the microphones. Afterwards, Nadia the tiger did apologize. I think I have a clip of uh, the tiger apologizing. For all that I have done, I am so sorry. Sorry, wrong tiger. You know, I had this item on my desktop for years and years, something that I wanted to one day get to. I do this sometimes, and it was labeled Tiger News, and I remember I had it. I don't even remember what the news was, and I clicked it open, thinking about this poor tiger at the zoo and Al Kaline, and there was a story from 2010, and it was uh, just laying there on my desktop, actually in my desktop. It was my computer desktop that I'm talking about. And I'm going to talk about it now because I can't wait another 10 years. Here is that story. It's from The Guardian. The world's first tiger summit wrapped up today with lingering concerns about the fate of the endangered predator. The high-profile conservation conference called by Russian President Vladimir Putin and World Bank President Robert Zelik mobilized political, financial, and celebrity support behind the goal of doubling the number of wild tigers by 2022. Celebrities, including film star Leonardo DiCaprio, who pledged a million of his own money, and supermodel Naomi Campbell, rubbed shoulders with Chinese premier Wen Jibao and leading conservationists. I know, you hear rub shoulders these days, and you deeply inhale because <gasps> of social distancing. But remember, remember, it was 2010. This article goes on, or went on, past tense, Uh, Or to honor Leo, I guess we should say. The article goes on, the heart will go on. Anyway, here's what it says. Despite donor pledges of almost $330 million aimed at making the great cat worth more alive than dead. Yeah, that's true because there's a black market for tiger bones and tiger hides and yeah, tiger penises. That's a surprise in your Frosted Flakes, huh? But look at the math. Back then, the global wild tiger population was listed at 3,000 tigers. And 330 million divided by 3,000 tigers means that every tiger is worth a little over $100,000. I mean, back when the article was written, hopefully the tigers invested wisely. But hunted tigers, black market tigers, their hides and penises didn't go for $100,000. I don't understand how tigers with that kind of value were being poached. I say there should be some sort of tiger sovereign wealth fund. I mean, who would kill a tiger if you knew he was that valuable and also friends with Leonardo DiCaprio? Or had the protection of Vladimir Putin? I would think that that would be a big disincentive if Putin was really serious about protecting the tigers. I think Putin could protect the tigers. And the article, as I said, said the goal was doubling the population by 2022. It's good to read articles with lofty goals that are far in the future if you wait a decade to read them because you could judge the progress and they didn't make it. There are now about, they say, about 4,000 tigers in the wild. Why did it fail? Well, the article also talked about working through the Global Tiger Initiative at the World Bank. When I clicked on the link, there was a link in the article to Global Tiger Initiative. It did take me to a website called globaltigerinitiative.org, but the entirety of the webpage was a link to an Australian online gambling site. I do not see how that is going to save the tigers. And now, with poor Nadia sick up there in the Bronx, it is a tough time for the tigers, for all of tigerdom. It is nothing to purr about. Actually, did you know this? Tigers don't purr, they chuff. Do you know what chuffing sounds like? I have a sound file here somewhere. Ah, okay. Here is what tigers sound like. 
I have a lot to atone for. Again, wrong tiger. All right, I will play an actual tiger chuff right here. That's some good chuffing. But as I said, a tough week for the tiger. Nadia, get well soon. Eh, she doesn't care. She's a tiger. Al Kaline, rest in peace. He doesn't care. He's dead. Tiger Woods, sorry, the Masters had been moved to November. He doesn't care. He's rich. Robert Zellick, can't get a handle on the World Bank's old URLs. He doesn't care. He left the World Bank in 2012. I guess these days, we're also concentrating on saving ourselves that no one's concentrated on saving the tiger or all the other things that used to be good uses of our time and resources. And I still think it's good to pay attention to some issues that aren't the immediate issue, the one issue. It's a good reminder that the problems of the world haven't stopped because of the pandemic and that there will still be lots of work to do once the virus is behind us. Now, you might think, oh, my God, that's depressing. That's daunting. That's pessimistic. But I don't think so. I kind of think that once we've been up against and hopefully through this worldwide scourge, that the rest of the problems in the world and the wildlife therein won't, maybe, I hope, won't seem quite as impossible and insurmountable as they once did. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Lobby is the GIST's associate producer. Her favorite tiger is Shulman. It builds confidence and offers a great aerobic workout. Margaret Kelly is the newest addition to the GIST staff. Her favorite tiger is Tiger Williams, member of the Toronto Maple Leafs. He's the NHL's career leader in penalty minutes, meaning he was both wild but often in captivity. GIST producer Daniel Schrader's favorite tiger is Flying Tiger Copenhagen for their broad array of items that sell for only $2 or $3 but are clearly worth like $2.75 or $3.50. The GIST. Our favorite tiger is Tiger Bomb. Ah, the soothing relief of Tiger Bomb, menthol, and camphor. So much better than rival brands Ocelot, Ointment, and Leopard Liniment. Tiger Bomb. Get it wherever weird-smelling lubrication is dispensed. Oompuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. Bum, 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 bum,